Hello, my name is Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price, a medical oncologist and president of Lung Cancer Canada. Welcome to our podcast series called Lung Cancer Voices. In this series of podcasts, I'm interviewing patients, caregivers, healthcare professionals, some of the leading lung cancer researchers in the country, indeed in the world, to highlight important and relevant issues facing those affected by lung cancer. So in this podcast, I'm speaking with Donald Monk and his partner, Peter Mitchell. Don has stage four lung cancer and is now a four-year survivor. And in this podcast series before, we've heard from patients with small cell lung cancer and patients receiving uh, what we call targeted therapies. But the most common types of lung cancer are non-small cell lung cancer without any specific mutations that can be targeted. And so Don is therefore an example of many, many thousands of people diagnosed each year in Canada with lung cancer. And we're really going to hear the remarkable story that he has to tell. So Don and Peter, welcome to the LCC podcast. Thank you. So to set the scene a little, maybe you could tell me a little bit about your background. Who, who is Donald Monk? Well, one thing, I'm very happy to be part of your remarkable program or a remarkable survivor. Uh, basically, I'm retired and I had a career, a 40-year career in aviation. I joined the Navy when I was, what, 17 and uh, went to um, a Naval Academy and uh, graduated from there, went through flight training and became a pilot in the Navy and then went into the Air Force and uh, spent 20 years in the military. And uh, after 20, after I guess about 1974, I then went into Transport Canada and became a pilot with them and spent my whole career really in aviation, flying, which I love to do. So then lung cancer came into your life. Can you tell me how that happened? What kind of symptoms developed that led to the diagnosis? Well, in 2015, actually 2000, late, late 2014 in the fall, I started to notice I was getting uh, short of breath and uh, fatigued easily. And this progressively got worse and worse until in... February, I guess, of two fifth or, or, or 2015, it really got bad. So I went to my uh, GP. They did a number of tests. They did um, uh, x-rays. They did uh, breathing tests and on and on. And they had everything from COPD, emphysema. Of course, the minute I mentioned I had been a smoker 30 years prior, they immediately, you know, COPD. And, uh, and that seemed to be the, you know, the going trend then. And uh, finally, I got a, um, a uh, diagnosis of uh, pneumonia because they looked at a x-ray and they said, oh, you've got pneumonia. And strangely enough, when they said that, I said, oh, good, because always in the back of my mind was the big C word. And, uh, but it got worse and worse and worse. They put me on medication and it wasn't getting any better. And finally, it got so bad that I... I got a, a, um, a referral to a respirologist, but this was in March, I guess, of 2015. The appointment with the respirologist was in August, which was really not acceptable. I called his office and said, look, I live 15 minutes away. If you have a cancellation, call me and I'll be there. Strangely enough, the next week they called me. And they said, we have an appointment for a you know, an appointment for you with a respirologist. So I went to the appointment, and he looked at me, and by that time I had developed a, a swelling 
between the shoulder and the neck on the left-hand side. It was up in the uh, those glands that are up there. I forget the name right now, not being a doctor. And um, he looked at this, and he uh, he listened to my lungs, and uh, he was the first one that had mentioned the word cancer. He said it could be. He said, but what I want to do is a CT scan. So uh, he said, I'll book you for a CT scan, but it could be a couple of months before you can get a CT scan. So uh, I said, well, what's my option? He said, your option is to go into emergency. And that way you will get a... Um, uh, a faster type scan. Can I, can I interject and ask Peter here? Because it sounds like you're getting pretty sick. Peter, were you? What were you thinking? He sounds like he's getting well, unwell. It, it was getting pretty scary because he would, you know, he'd come from the bedroom out to the chair in the living room and flop into it, totally exhausted from the effort. I got a, sho- a, a chair for him for the shower because he couldn't manage to stand in the shower long enough to. You know, so he was able to at least sit, and if he fell, he was going to fall less than from six feet up. Did but he fall over in that no, time? No. And and how far is this distance from the bedroom to the chair where he flops into? I don't know, thirty feet maybe. Right. So, were you were you doing? Presumably, you're not doing any of the normal things you do at this point. That is correct. Like going to the grocery store. Well, or... I, I would be going to the grocery store. He would be staying home. Okay. So then the CT scan gets booked and it's going to be a bit far away and you're given the option of going to the emergency department. So is that what you did? Okay. Now what happened at that point too, was as I'm going to mention now because I can refer to it later, is that when I was sleeping, I slept on my right-hand side. I had this terrible noise in my chest. It, it was a rasping sound. It was very, very noisy. The minute I rolled over on my left side, it would clear up. And uh, this, to me, was a bad sign. And uh, as I say, I went to the respirologist, and he suggested emergency. I was a bit hesitant because I don't like going to emergency wards because you can sit there for hours and hours and hours. But he said, if you choose to do that, here is a phone number I want you to call. And he said, and I'll have a doctor meet you in emergency, which I thought was uh, pretty good service. And um, so that's where it stayed. Sunday night, it got really, really bad. And that's when Peter suggested quite forcefully that we were going to emergency. And I can let you maybe expand on that. Well, that was a kind way of putting it. I think my exact words were, if you don't, if we don't go to emergency now, I'm calling 911. Which way would you like it? So we went to emergency. So I arrived at emergency, and sure enough, I was met by a doctor and ushered very quickly past uh, reception. They immediately put me on oxygen at about a strength six setting, which I understand is pretty high. And um, then I went through the process. At that point, I entered the system, which I think is uh, an, an important fact because if you're outside the system, it's hard to get things done. Once you're inside the system, especially in the cancer treatment, um, the world's your oyster. It's really, uh, it's, it's wonderful, wonderful treatment. And uh, so they gave me a CT scan. They did a biopsy. And at that point, uh, uh, the doctor came in and he declared that, yes, you do, in fact, have stage four lung cancer. So at that point, then you get referred to the cancer center. And this is where I'm going to disclose to our listeners that I'm your oncologist and uh, I um, remember vividly 
the first time we met because you were so sick and you came into the room in a wheelchair hooked up to oxygen coughing what were you thinking what was going through your mind as you were you'd been told you had lung cancer i guess at that point and you'd been referred to the cancer center what well, can- it it, uh, it comes as a shock to the system and uh, and i thought at the time uh, you know my goodness what now but i thought to myself well there's not there's nothing you can do you can't look back so you've got to look forward the doctor in the hospital had told me i had uh, oh, two to three months and to get my, uh, my you know affairs in order which I, which is always an odd way to put it but uh, i suppose it hits you with a baseball bat and um, so i said fine we went home i started to get my affairs in order but my affairs are in order anyway but Peter has something to add. Well, yeah. So Peter, you're you're Don's partner. You're at this point. You're his caregiver. Were you mentally preparing for the worst at this point? How did you cope? Well, I'm a bit of a realist, so I was pretty well prepared from the beginning. Prepared as one can be from the beginning. But I remember the very first time we met you. You walked in, and you had a grim look, and you said, "What have What have you been told?" And we answered that. Oh, we know. We've been told it's not good. And then you relaxed, <laughs> as we all did, and it started from there. So it, it, we had by then, like all our estate stuff, our, our wills and stuff, That's all. that was all done. What we immediately did, or very shortly thereafter, was we got funeral arrangements made and paid for. We, I know this really sounds grim, but I'll tell you why. And he went through all the household finances with me, the bill payments, where the stuff was, all of that because that's a tremendous stress reliever to the caregiver. Because I know I can cope, I know I can manage, I don't have to panic in the eventuality because at that point, it looked like it could be imminent. We didn't think we had much time left. That's fantastic insight for people listening, Peter. But it it helped me, and and some people would listen to this and think, oh, that cold (laughs) so-and-so. But it isn't, you've gotta be a realist. You've You've gotta deal or at least for me, you've got to get things get things in order and deal with it. Anyway, that's so that, where we that's a that that's a process we call advanced care planning, which is the concept that when you're facing uh, a life-threatening illness or a life-limiting illness, and the future is uncertain, what are the kind of things you should think about? So advanced care planning, and there's there's medical bits, there's care pieces, who's going to look after you, there's legal pieces like a will and uh, power of attorney and financial affairs and uh, many people actually do or tell me they do what you've done they they have booked and paid for their funeral they've picked out the hymns um, and then there's a very personal bit there's a sort of a bucket list you know if you don't have so much time what's important to you and people have told me all sorts of things some people have gone to Florida some people want to go ice fishing other people it's being with family or reconnecting with people they haven't seen for a while Anyway, that was an aside. Um, so, Don, you're really sick at this point, um, but um, you had some treatment. Uh, what was the first treatment you received, and how did that go? Well, the first, the, uh, the first set of treatments was uh, the chemo. And uh, I started the chemo, I guess, about a week after I had seen you for the first time. <clears throat> and I had... Um, I had horrible thoughts about that because I had heard terrible things of chemo that 
that it's just terrible. It's like torture on and on and on. That's why I wasn't thinking that this was going to be a cakewalk. So when I started the chemo, I was quite surprised that it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. The only thing I had a uh, problem with was um, gastric problems and uh, very, uh, a very tenderness in my mouth for some reason. And it has something to do with the cells or something. And uh, the gastric problems got worse and worse, and uh, it was gas and cramps and everything else. But as far as nausea went, um, diarrhea, not really. I, you know, I didn't really have a lot of problems. Now, Peter could tell you other, uh, otherwise because he sat across the table from me. And, uh, and he'd say, how do you feel? And I said, great. He said, you look terrible. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, we survived through that. And uh, that went on for about a year, the chemo. And uh, as I say, it wasn't bad at all. So better than you expected. And I think a lot of people have that experience. But the purpose of the chemo was to help you feel better and get the cancer under control. And you'd kind of said earlier you've been told two to three months and you just mentioned there that you were on the chemo for a year so did it make you feel better did it help your breathing and your coughing and those other symptoms well it uh within two months the breathing was uh, a lot better of course i was still on oxygen and also and i'll go back to the lung noises that i used to experience at night within i would say four to six weeks that noise stopped this was after I started the chemo. And I thought, my goodness, uh, maybe this is working. Maybe it's getting better. I don't think I'd had a CT scan, a follow-up CT scan until then. And, uh, and I thought, gee, I want to get off this oxygen. So I had mentioned to you uh, that uh, I'd like to get myself off oxygen, and, uh, and, and how should I do it? And I think your comment at the time, and I think it was joking, uh, Remove the oxygen. When you turn blue, go back on the oxygen. But what I did, did I is really I thought, being, uh, being ex-military and what have you, uh, I, I wanted to be a bit more technical. So I bought myself an oximeter, and I went through a little program where I would go off oxygen for a half hour, take my readings, go back on, take my readings back and forth. And I kept charts, and I had all yeah. kinds of things. And I finally realized that, uh, yeah, my breathing was getting better. Now, Peter uh, might yeah. add to that. Peter, what did you see changing? Well, it's funny he should mention that. I forgot all about it. He has this, what we call the famous blue folder. That blue folder, he has every piece of medical information in it. It's all documented. And it was his way of taking control of the situation. And I think for, for me, it, would, it wouldn't work for me, but it sure worked for him. And that blue folder goes everywhere. But when I when the chemo seemed to be getting the cancer in check, and he was an excellent patient. He sucked it up. I, don't, I guess it's the military background, but he sucked it up and suffered through. He said, I have no appetite. I'd put the food in front of him, and I'd say, eat it, and he would, reluctantly, but he'd eat. I was careful what I fed him, but so he was really a good patient. And, and I seem to remember that within, within a month or two, your cough was better, you were walking into the clinic, you weren't coming in a wheelchair, and then, you know... No oxygen. Soon thereafter, you were, you were off oxygen. So um, moving on through the story, you know, you, you, you told us and I, what you were told about your prognosis, and I probably would have agreed with that given how sick you were at the time if, if things hadn't worked. Um, and the, but the chemo worked for, for quite a while... 
Um, and then and then things changed again, and and you moved on to immunotherapy, which we'll talk about in a minute. But I think it's it's just worth remembering that in lung cancer these days we do get very excited about immunotherapy and targeted therapies. But we, you know, I think you're a good lesson to remind us that actually chemotherapy, our old established treatment, can also be very effective. Um, so. Um, before we get to the immunotherapy bit, Peter, let me come back to you. When things are now looking better with, with Don doing well on the chemo, how, how did you both reevaluate the future, having everything being pretty imminent? Did you start to make plans? Not specifically plans, but we did. I did start doing the bills every month and let him take it over again because I figured, well, a quick refresher course would be in order if, if needed, but it looked pretty good. Um, and we, he had really no symptoms of the cancer coming back. It was a scan that revealed the thing. So there was no act- symptomatic thing that showed it. It was, it was results of a scan. And you came in and said, well, I have bad news for you. It's back or yeah. it's still there. Or, and, and then you suggested the immunotherapy. And I guess that's the advantage, like you say, of being in the system is we didn't have to wait for you to get as sick as you were all over again, we could see on the scans that, that the chemo had, had really stopped working. And we, we switched to immunotherapy. Had you ever heard of immunotherapy? I had, I, I had seen it on, uh, on television. I'd read articles. And uh, so I was, uh, I was quasi familiar with it, and, uh, as much as a layman can be. Right. In fact, immunotherapy is the, the first ever lung cancer drugs that were were advertised on TV in the U.S. You can't do yes, that in Canada, yeah. but uh, you know we see all sorts of medical adverts on TV in the U.S., but immunotherapy was the first ever lung cancer one. Well, I was quite excited with it when you mentioned it and uh, because I thought, well, this is pretty good because if it's using your immune system, your immune system can track any mutations in the cancer. I mean, this is all being done internally with your own body and letting your own body fight the uh, fight the cancer. So I was, I was quite excited. Right, right. So the concept is that cancer cells have learned uh, tricks to hide themselves from the immune system. And I sometimes use a Harry Potter analogy of they wear an invisibility cloak. Or if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, they put on the magic ring that makes <laughs> them invisible. And so the cancer cells can't be seen by the immune system in the way that bacteria can. Uh, and what this new series of drugs do is they, they allow the, the cancer to be visible. It's taking off that cloak or taking off the magic ring. And suddenly the T cells, the part of the immune system, can sort of ramp up yep, yep. And, and fight the cancer. So, so how long have you been on immunotherapy now? July the 4th of 19, or correction, 19, I'm still in the 19th century. Back uh, 20, uh, 2016, July the 4th, I went on it. So, so it's, it's coming up to four years, three and a half years now. Since you were diagnosed and immunotherapy for oh, about two and a half years. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. It's, it's coming up to uh, f- four years total treatment for, for, so for three years on the... Uh, Have you had any side effects from the immunotherapy? Uh, the only side effect I have is itching and a rash, and, uh, which, is, which just requires scratching. And, uh, and that seems to, uh, seems to work. So a and, mi- um, mild itch? It's a mild oh, itch, yeah. yeah. And uh, when they first said, well, you know, you can experience a rash, and I would sit there and scratch and say, well, I haven't got a rash. So I, you know, I, 
on any of the reports I did, I, I would say no rash, and I realized an itch can be a rash. But uh, no, it's a minor thing, and um, it uh, really there's no no effect at all. Okay, so Don, so through this time then, you've, you're doing now really well, multi-year survivor, and so other health issues now can come to the fore, and you had this one particular series of events. C- can you tell me about that? One of my scans had indicated a, uh, a polyp down in the intestinal area. And uh, my um, GP had noticed this on the scan, and uh, I had an appointment with him, and he said, well, do you want to do a colonoscopy and, uh, and have a look at this? So I, okay, fine. I'd had one before. I'd had one 10 years before without a problem. And so I went and had the colonoscopy, which went fine. They cut this polyp out, which was about the size of a very small grape, and uh, then sent me home. That night, I started bleeding. And, of course, the problem with internal bleeding is you bleed a whole lot before you know you're bleeding because it fills the bowel up and then it wants to come out. We called an ambulance off to the hospital. They did some tests. They did another colonoscopy. They put a clamp in and uh, sent me home again. The next night, bang, call the ambulance back into the hospital. And I ended up in uh, intensive care, the, uh, the ICU for about four days, I nearly bled to death. And I thought to myself when I was there, you know, good God, you've gone through all of this, and here you're going to bleed to death. <laughs> However, I didn't. It was, it, it was cured, and all I would suggest is don't look for problems or trouble. Well, because the story was more than that. Eh? When you, you were in ICU, and they did a thing called an angiogram and an embolization where they, they put glue in the blood vessel yes. that's bleeding, um, and but then you was, picked that up. I didn't. Well, then there was a complication from the the angiogram. Then you had a yes. sort of aneurysm in your groin, and yes. it was one thing after another. And uh, it just kept piling up. Right. And so it's a reminder to the medical community that you know, just because we can do something, maybe doesn't necessarily mean we should. Yeah. So there's a really interesting book by uh, a physician in Toronto called Dr. Danielle Martin, and she wrote something along the lines of. Don't just do something. Hurry up and stand there. Good, and good advice. <laughs> okay, so back back to the lung cancer. So, Peter, you and Don, uh, you've now been lung cancer survivors for four years. How, how do you view things now? Well, a lot better than I did at the beginning because our life now is basically normal. As long as it carries on like now, we can pretty much do everything. I mean, he's approaching 80, so there are some limitations on what we can and can't do but we could travel we could do what we basically need to do i mean he's got to go now now it's only once a month so right and life we, is good thank you very much the, and some of the really encouraging things for people who are doing well on immunotherapy is is what we're finding is that if you do well for a couple of years on immunotherapy you're likely to carry on doing well and uh, the, the, the survival rates for people who do well on immunotherapy are r- remarkably good. Um, Peter, I'm going to just ask you one more question. As, as a caregiver, what advice would you give to other people who are in your role and who are just maybe starting out on this journey? Well, this one I'm going to read. I would wish anyone a patient as good as mine's been. Um, and you've got to focus on what's real, what 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 you can do within your control. Um, try not to think about the long term. Don't think about 
why me? Um, don't focus on death. Just focus on putting one foot in front of the other as much as possible and get through each day as it comes. That would be my best advice to anybody. Thank you, Peter, for that. And Don, uh, congratulations on your really remarkable uh, success with what was really sounds like a just an extremely scary start to a diagnosis. Well, so I thank I thank you, and I thank the nurses in the chemo section, and um, and I thank the system, which is uh, which is very very responsive once you're into it. Great. Well, thank you both for joining the podcast. Thank you again for joining us. Lung Cancer Voices was made possible in part by a generous donation from Marielle and Nick Burris. Thanks to our producer, Ryan Mullen. Please send us your feedback, like and follow us on Facebook at LungCan and on Twitter at LungCancer underscore can. For more information about lung cancer or to donate, volunteer or share your story, visit our webpage at lungcancercanada.ca.